Okay, backside of your notebooks. Um, if you've noticed in the last couple of lessons that we've had, each one of the lessons has a title at the top and it starts with D1. It's not just that I've got a, a problem with my printer or anything else and it puts D1 at the front of the title of every one of my messages, but D1 actually means something significant. It means discipline one. And if you notice, there are five disciplines on the backside of your notebook. If you have a really old notebook like I do, there are actually six. We actually took the last of the six off and we just teach that in the first week, the vision and purpose of Grace Bible Church. But what I want to do today is talk about how um, what we're doing here fits into the, um, the purpose of this church and why we actually have build and what we're really trying to aim at here. And I'm going to do this a few times in the year just so we can keep this in front of us. And the idea here is that there's a progression from D1, Discipline 1, to Discipline 5. Um, what we're doing here is we are trying to establish, again, um, what BUILD is, is becoming united in leadership disciplines. We're trying to establish a common understanding of what it means to be a leader. A leader first over your own heart, then a leader in your home, and then hopefully, Lord willing, a leader into some type of fruitful, productive ministry. Now, we would love that if it was at this church, but any ministry that you're involved in, formal, informal, anything else, ministry related to the gospel and putting the gospel in front of other people is what we want to prepare guys for. So discipline one is the heart. Um, we have given two, three messages already, and the first one was the vision and purpose, but the last two um, was God's transformation of man. And the next several lessons that we're going to teach also deal with the heart, just like the first one does. And the ministry leader in Grace Bible Church must prayerfully shepherd his heart towards God through the Word of God, and in particular, through the Gospel. So what we're saying there is, if anybody wants to be productive for the Lord, it starts with caring for your own heart. It starts with caring for your own heart by the reading of God's Word, and by spending time reciting back to God what you've read in your Word, in His Word, in prayer. And this is what we want everybody to do. We want the guys to make sure that first and foremost, the first thing we're doing with our lives, when we think about being fruitful for the Lord, is caring for our own hearts. And we don't want to play leapfrog over our own hearts and run after all these great ministry opportunities and jump over our own heart and jump over our own home. So the guy who is preparing his heart well by shepherding his heart with the word is ideally qualified to step into something. And the first thing he's qualified to step into is his home. He's, whether you have, you're a single guy and you're living with your parents, you're a single guy and you're living with roommates, you're a married guy living with your wife, with kids, maybe you've got grandkids, in your home from time to time, um, you are a shepherd first and foremost over your heart, and heart shepherding qualifies you to actually speak into the lives of those people who are living with you. And your, your leadership of them, your leadership of your home is gonna be so much more fruitful, it's gonna be so much less task-oriented when your shepherding is starting at, at a heart level with God's word. And so when you start with a heart level with shepherding your own heart with God's word, you are ready to actually communicate well with your wife, to communicate well with a roommate, to communicate well with a parent, to communicate well with a grandkid. You're actually best prepared to, to be effective and fruitful and useful for the Lord when you have cared for your own heart first. So we want to make sure that we get the, the sequence right here. Is If you want to be an effective parent, if you want to be an effective roommate, an effective kid, an effective grandparent, it starts with shepherding your own heart. And then you take the fruit of that into those relationships that are in your home. So um, this is what the leadership of Grace Bible Church thinks is essential for every guy in this church, every man in this church. Um, the third discipline is ministry. With a heart for God, the gospel, and a household following his lead, the ministry leader at Grace Bible Church steps into the church to shepherd others towards God and the gospel. There's tons of people serving at this church. I mean, if you look at the roster for service in Next Generation Ministries, there's hundreds of people who serve in Next Generation Ministries. On any week, there's like 55 people serving in NGM. Um, Lord willing, those people are effective here when they lead those little ones because they're effective in their home and because they're effective caring for their own heart. And so what we, we aim for here, and we realize that we all have real lives and we realize we all have real issues and, and real things to take care of us, but that when we appear in this church and we're serving in whatever capacity, whether you're handing out bulletins on the way in the door or whether you're teaching an NGM or whether you're serving in some other capacity, whatever it looks like, that 
that that service is coming out of a home that's well shepherded and that home is coming out of a, a leader whose heart is well shepherded. Um, so again, we, we don't want to play leapfrog. And so hopefully when, um, if you decide you want to be involved in ministry at this church and you, you approach an elder and say, hey, I'm available for NGM or I'm available for uh, the communion rotation, serving the communion trays or whatever else it is, uh, hopefully the first thing that elder talks to you about is tell me about your heart shepherding and tell me about what's happening in your home. Um, because we want to make sure that the guys at this church, um, their service to this church is actually the best when it's coming out of a well-shepherded heart and a well-led home. Um, so we, we try to get that uh, in place for people who are serving on the worship team, for people who are greeting at the door, for people who are doing anything else. And it's really, really good. And actually the ladies in their Wellspring ministry, they share the same three disciplines that we do, um, with the exception that they're not leading in their home. What we talk about is how they are coming alongside their husband in their home. If, if someone's a new Christian, do the elders want them to be plugged into some kind of service in the church, or no? Yes, we do. The question is, if someone's a new believer, would we like them to be serving in the church? And the answer is yes. We'd love anybody to be serving in the church. Where they serve in the church kind of depends on how they're doing in their walk with the Lord a little bit. They're probably not going to be leading worship or serving on the worship team if they're two months into their walk with the Lord, but we would love for anybody who's a new believer to say, God has changed my life, and listen, I am I'm all in on this church, and if I'm helping take care of little ones, I served in the nursery for a long time by just holding the, the three-month-olds. It's great. Um, wonderful opportunities all over for people to serve. Uh, some opportunities are probably more reserved for the people who have been walking with the Lord for a little while longer. So, but we want everybody serving in some way here. But So the ladies, they share the same first three disciplines we do, and, and they go through the same thing we do. Um, and, the, and the goal there is that the ladies in the households are thinking the same way about heart shepherding and home shepherding as the men in those same households. We tell the ladies, hey, if you're home and you're taking care of little ones all day, uh, you can't parent them very well unless you've already parented your own heart with the word, right? And if you're teaching them about being obedient, you need to be one who's obedient first, right? And that's what a lot of moms do, and praise God for those guys, those ladies who do that every day. Um, so we have two other disciplines. Uh, we have discipline four and discipline five. And discipline four is the qualification. The ministry leader at Grace Bible Church prayerfully pursues qualifications for deacon and for elder according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It is the goal of this church and leadership to be raising up really qualified guys to take the place of the current leadership because we're probably becoming senile at a faster rate than we realize and we need qualified guys to come up behind us. And so a lot of times we're looking for guys who are just um, really taking care of their own heart and are doing really well. They're really taking care of their homes. Their marriages are in good shape. They have good relationships with people um, and they're fruitful in their life with the Lord. And um, a guy doesn't become a deacon, he doesn't become an elder overnight. It's a long process of proving faithfulness. And it starts with a guy who, who's very faithful and very consistent about putting his face in front of the Bible and his heart in front of God's Word every morning. So we want men to understand what those qualifications are. Um, you know, we have leaders in the women's group. The women have leaders. So I'm assuming that they would want We need, we need women, any woman who's leading right next door there. Um, my wife and several other ladies are involved in the leadership at Wellspring. Those gals are doing the same thing. They are taking care of their heart. They are taking care of their mind. They're taking care of their home. And they are also um, women who are aiming to be the kind of women who are described in 1 Timothy 3, the wives of men who are currently serving as deacons. Um, a guy is, is preparing himself to be a deacon. Uh, one of the effects of good home shepherding that that man has is a wife who's also preparing her heart well, and she fits the descriptions well. So, yeah, thank you. And lastly, uh, the hermeneutic. Uh, it's really, really important that the guys who are leading this church know how to read their Bible, uh, know how to talk about the Bible, know how to teach God's Word. And so... At Build here in the last couple of weeks, we begin, last couple of lessons, we begin to do that. And then we have the trust. Let me see a show of hands of guys who've taken the trust before. A great opportunity for you to grow in your understanding of how to handle God's Word. Um, 
If you have other training, that's really, really good too. Um, we respect that. We, we love that. We're thankful for that. Um, but we want every man in this word, in this church, to know how to read his Bible, know how to understand his Bible, so that when he's got it open in front of his kids, in front of his wife, he can, he can be a workman who's not ashamed. So that's what we do here at Build. That's why we're here. Um, but you'll notice that what comes first here is the heart. Um, we want to be somewhat countercultural in the fact that we want to address the heart, the heart, the heart, the heart, the heart. And we'll get to the other things as we're still addressing the heart. Um, because what is most dangerous in the church is a guy who's got theology that's this wide and this deep and, and this broad, um, and he has no heart for God. And that's how churches blow up, and we, we don't want that here. Um, one, of the, one of the most sobering statistics you'll ever find is that it's very easy to find good churches, but it's very difficult to find a good church that has been a good church for 40 years. Um, and so this is why we put this in front of the guys every year, every week, every time we get together, um, because um, there needs to be another generation of guys coming up. If you look at our elder board, uh, the oldest elder is 70 years old, the youngest elder is 35 years old. Uh, we need a mixture of guys. Um, we don't want it to be the case where everybody leaves the elder board due to death at the same time. Um, we need a mixture of men. Okay. Yeah, Lord forbid. So um, that is why I, I plead with you guys to continue to care for your own heart. Uh, this church really is a better place when we do that. Um, and we're preparing leadership for the next generation. It is a joy to watch guys do that. Um, I've watched guys over the course of 10 years walk in the front door. Hey, I'm pretty new to my walk with the Lord, but I love this church to being guys who are serving as elders in this church. There's a guy that I knew uh, who's currently on the elder board, and I met him when he was 23 years old. He didn't know the Lord. He wasn't going to church. He marches into this church, and uh, 15 years later, he's on the elder board, and he is a very, very good elder. In fact, he's the chairman of our elder board right now. So, so um, there's big ramifications to heart shepherding, big, big, big ramifications, and all of it relates to your home, and it relates to the kind of church that you attend. So praise God for that. Last two times we met, we went through the, the God's transformation of man lesson. And those really are foundational to what we believe here at Grace Bible Church and how God saves a sinner. And so uh, what I want you guys to do is to hang on to those blue pamphlets that we hung out. Make sure you keep that in your possession in your home somewhere because there's good information there to refer back to. Um, that's kind of the baseline for what we believe about how God saves sinners here at Grace Bible Church. There was a lot of material in those last two lessons. And so um, what I want you to know is that uh, going forward, there's going to be a little bit less material. In particular, there's going to be less scripture. We're going to try to stay in some passages. Um, but because those lessons were foundational to what we believe, um, and it is important to have substantial support from scripture for what you believe and to put that in front of the men, um, there was a ton of scripture references there, um, but know that that's probably not going to be the, the, the pattern for the rest of the time we're here. Hopefully that's not the pattern here today. We are going to be talking about troubling and comforting truths for our hearts. We're going to talk about three truths for the believer that are very troubling, and we're going to talk about five truths that are very comforting. And uh, let's pray before we go any further, shall we? Lord, I thank you for these men again. I thank you for their desire to be involved in body life here this morning. Lord, I thank you for saving, that you gave a Savior so that men can have transformed lives, and with that life they can be useful in your hands and the lives of other people. And Lord, especially men at this church. I thank you for that. I do thank you for the truth of your word, and I pray, Lord, as we spend time together this morning, that your word would teach us, you would be the one who informs us, Lord, that we would come away encouraged by what you have done to save sinners. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Correction, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Three troubling truths for my heart. What I'm going to be sharing is truths that are true absolutely true for the unbeliever, but they're true in some way for the believer as well. I'm going to list them for you ahead of time so we can keep them in mind and see where we're going. The first truth that's troubling is that hardness of heart keeps the sinner from God. The second truth that's troubling is whenever possible, unbelief, not belief, but unbelief, will naturally take root in the heart. 
And the third truth that's troubling is self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Um, they're certainly true in the life of the unbeliever. They're true to some degree and in some way in the life of the believer. So Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19. Hardness of heart keeps the sinner from God. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. This is a church that has been very well taught. This church has a very good foundation. He spent about three years pastoring them there. These people understand the gospel. He's writing to Christians. And he says this, I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So Paul is speaking here about the unbeliever. He's talking to believers about the unbeliever. And if you look at the end of verse 18, you see the phrase, because of the hardness of heart. This describes why unbelievers have a deeply ingrained ignorance. This is not an accidental ignorance in the unbeliever. This is not where the unbeliever can say, well, I didn't see that ignorance coming. This is actually a very willful, very purposeful, very intended ignorance. It's like the child who will not intentionally look in their parents' eyes when their parent goes to correct them because they know they've sinned against their parents. It's the same kind of thing. It's a very purposeful, very willful ignorance. So to describe this ignorance, Paul turns to their heart. The condition of their heart is what leads them to be willfully ignorant before God and his will for their life. And that condition of their heart that causes them to be ignorant of God is the hardness of their heart. And the hardness here means being dull or being insensitive, something that cannot be penetrated at all. And the best way to see this is to read verses 18 and 17 backwards, starting at the end of verse 18 and reading backwards. The hardness of heart is the ultimate cause for why the unbeliever is held fast in a willful ignorance of God. They're held fast in willful ignorance because of their hardness of heart. But then the unbeliever's ignorance is the cause for them being excluded from the life of God. And in that ignorance, that ignorance is the description of what it means to be um, possessing a reasoning process that's flooded with spiritual darkness. And that's why in the unbeliever's mind it has failed him and led him to a futile walk with the Lord. So reading it backwards, his hardness of heart is the cause for why he's held fast in his ignorance. His ignorance explains why he's excluded from the life of God. And that's the description of what it means to be flooded with spiritual darkness and to think with spiritual darkness. And then that is why the person walks a futile life, because his thought process is completely flooded with darkness. And so that truth applies to every single unbeliever. What I want to do here today is turn to Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 3, and we can see how some of these same ideas are true in the life and in the mind of the believer. Now, the book of Hebrews is written to Christians, Christians in the first generation, first couple generations of the church. These are Jews that are persecuted because they have left the church. They're persecuted by the other Jews. And they're also persecuted by the Gentiles because they're Jews. So they're in a very difficult place. And Paul, no, not Paul, the author, is writing to them. I was telling myself I wasn't going to do that today. I was telling myself I was not going to say Paul. So pretend I didn't say Paul. Okay? I was telling myself, do not do that. I see, when you're old, lots of things just kind of happen. Um, the author is writing to believers in chapter 3 verse 8 he's giving instruction to believers and he says do not harden your heart as when Israel provoked me in the day of trial in the wilderness the author is writing about the situation that the Israelites had when they had just crossed the Red Sea they had just been delivered from Egypt they'd been freed from slavery and they were in the wilderness and they were running out of water they didn't have water and Israel actually provoked God by testing God in the way that they were being demanding with Moses as Moses was leading them. So the author is writing to the church in Jerusalem and he's saying, do not harden your hearts like those people did. Drop down to verse 15. He says, today, if you hear his voice, if you're a believer, 
you have the Spirit of God within you. Do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. Again, reference back to Israel in the Old Testament. Chapter 4, verse 7, he says the same thing. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. These are instructions that are given to the believer not to harden their heart. The reason why is because the believer is in a mixed condition. In that mixed condition, you must fight against the hardening of your heart. You must continually fight to soften your heart. It's like being on a skateboard on an incline. Okay, If you're pushing on that skateboard and you're heading uphill, you'll continue to make progress. But once you quit pushing that skateboard, you will come to a stop and you will start receding and going backwards. In the same way, the believer, if he quits fighting for softness of heart, will have a hard heart over time. So the heart of the believer can become hard, but he needs to fight to keep it from becoming hard. And this is a troubling truth to the believer. That I could actually have a heart that becomes hard. For sure I've been changed by God's grace. For sure I have affections for God. For sure I now have an understanding of the gospel. But my heart, my heart becomes hard if I don't shepherd it with the truth of the gospel on a regular basis. That is a troubling truth. Second troubling truth is whenever possible, unbelief, not belief, will naturally take root in the heart. And we're going to stay in Hebrews chapter 3 to look at this. The author is addressing the church with what he wrote and what is known about Israel and the way that they were behaving in the wilderness. And he says in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 3, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The focus here is in verse 12. Take care that there not be in any one of you an unbelieving heart. Again, he's writing to believers. The author is writing to believers. Believers must labor to root out this natural inclination not to trust God. Here's the reality. Indwelling sin does linger within the believer. And if you do nothing to shepherd your heart with the word of God and the gospel of your heart, will slide into unbelief. Your heart will not slide into belief. It will slide into unbelief. And it will do that very, very easily and very naturally. The kind of unbelief we're talking about here is not the unbelief that says, I don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I don't believe he died on the cross. I don't believe that his death was substitutionary atonement for everybody who put their trust in him. It's not that kind of unbelief. The unbelief we're talking about is the practical outworking of the gospel and what the gospel does in the heart and mind of a believer as they live their life. In other words, they would live like they have the unbelief. That's what happens when a believer does not consistently shepherd their heart with truth. It just naturally occurs in how they live out their life. They would still maintain with integrity the truth about Christ and the cross and the gospel, but their life pattern will naturally veer away from that. Okay. Can you explain that a little more? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not... I'm, I'm personally missing points. Okay. The truth is that... Um, the gospel has implications for how you live your life. The truth of the gospel about who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross has meaning, it has bearing, it has instruction, it has guidance for how you live your life. When the believer separates himself from that truth and taking that truth in, the truth of who Jesus is as their master and Lord doesn't change what he's done and their understanding of what he's done, but the implications for the, how they live in response to that is what becomes very weak in the man. And it has to do with how they interpret their circumstances around them, how they respond when they're offended, how they respond when they're sinned against, um, their willingness and their readiness to assist others in the body of Christ and to bring help and encouragement and aid. All of those things recede um, when a person does not have the gospel in front of them. And what that amounts to is unbelief for how the believer should live their life. So that's the second very, very concerning truth in the life of a believer. That's a very troubling truth. The third one is that self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Here at this church, we want to elevate the word of God. We understand that God gave his word to the church. In the Old Testament Israel, he gave Israel his law. When you read the New Testament, you see that Jesus carries forth part of that he doesn't carry forth all of the regulations for Israel. 
because the church is beginning and the church is not living under many of the same things that Israel was living under. But nonetheless, there were people in the church age at the beginning when Jesus started his earthly ministry that were adding self-made religion and they were called Pharisees. So suppose it crosses an unbeliever's mind at some point that he needs to be a religious man. Maybe there's an unbeliever who's in close proximity to believers and he sees them. And so what he wants to do is he wants to add some self-made religion to his life. He wants to see how that goes. I need to clean my life up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to add some rules and some regulations that I'm going to live by. Turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 15. Jesus describes what happens to the Pharisees when they do that. Now the Pharisees, they had the law. They understood the law. They knew the law as well as anybody else. But they added to the law. And we'll see this here. As we read, take a look at the way that the Pharisee puts his interpretation of what he must do ahead of what God says he must do. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. Some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus answered and said to them, and so Jesus is going to move the focus away from washing. He says, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. So that's the instruction from God. Verse 5. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. What they had done is the Pharisees had added a layer of their own law on top of the Mosaic law. And this was a law that they invented themselves. This was not divinely inspired, spirit-inspired law. It was something they made up. And Jesus wanted no part of that man-made code. He wanted no part of it at all. The Pharisee believed that obedience to his own man-made law would increase his standing before God. If I can add more on to God's law, and I can obey that law too, that will increase my standing before God. But as he does that, verse 5 tells us what happens to his disposition towards God's law. You say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. God gave the, the believer in the Old Testament Israel, he gave Israel the, the mandate that they need to care for their parents, they need to care for them well. What the man is doing here is he is violating God's law and God's commandment to honor his elderly mother and father by devoting to God the very resources that he would be needing to use to honor and care for his parents. So the very money that the Lord had entrusted to him, the money by which he would provide for his parents' care, uh, he was devoting to God. And his devoting to God here was not a noble, not a God-honoring devotion. It was allocating funds in such a way that would bring him benefit. So he added this layer on top of God's law, which was supposed to improve, in his mind, his standing before God. But what he's doing here is he's violating God's law in the process of doing that. And look at God's assessment of him in verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain do they worship me. So what happens when a man decides to add to God's law? on top of it in an effort to improve God's law or expand on God's law it ends up causing his heart to be far from him what the believer needs to do today is stop and think about the things that he adds in his life that are added on top of God's law that would in vain would cause him to be far from him in their heart and to worship him in vain those are three troubling truths for my heart you can summarize them hardness of heart keeps the sinner from God the sinner falls into unbelief very naturally outside of the, the counsel of Scripture. And self-made religion um, does not bring a man nearer to God. It actually makes a man farther from God. So you look at that, and those are actually pretty sobering things because those are things that, that any believer can fall into pretty easily. I know I, when I look at my life, I see evidence of that in my life. Um, as I look backwards over the years, I see it very clearly. So... Where is hope for the believer in this? And the hope is actually in God himself. Tom. So, um, like in verse 8, 
What he's saying here, when he says they honor me with their lips in verse 8, he's saying to me their, their only allegiance to me is with their words. He's saying their heart is far from me. Um, the fact that they're adding to God's perfect law means that their heart isn't engaged in that perfect law in the first place. Um, their heart is actually far from him. So they're speaking things. They'll say, yes, we've got this law. We've also got this other law that we added on top of it. And um, in speaking of the law that they have, they don't do it the justice and the honor that it deserves. So um, those, are, those are three very, very concerning truths. And so the only hope that the believer has here is in God. And... Not just any God, but a God who won't be motivated to act on the basis of what he sees in the sinner, but was motivated by his own heart to save that sinner. And let's think about what happens to these conditions at conversion. Think about what happens to hardness of heart, slowness to believe, and self-made religion. Here's what God does. Um, the power of these things to enslave the believer is broken, but the power to deceive or harass the believer is not. What we learn in Romans 6 is that the power of sin has been broken, but sin's presence is still there. So, the believer can still harden their heart but because of the deceitfulness of sin. We will fall into doubt and unbelief at some time, but we're still capable of having our hearts far from God while our lips make us sound like we just left his presence. So what I want to do is put five truths in front of us that can really comfort us and encourage us in the midst of these difficulties. And we want to think about these we want to think about what God does in this. And what God does in this is he brings the gospel into view. He brings into view a Savior on a cross who rose from an empty tomb and left an empty tomb. So the first thing that God does that should really encourage the believer is that God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6 together. And I'm going to take a drink real quick. Okay, reading verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and this is a church that's not in the same position or the same place that the church in Ephesus is. They don't have the same theological foundation, but they're believers nonetheless. These are people who have come to Christ. Paul writes to them and he says, For we, as Paul and the authors of the letter, do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And this is where we want to put our focus. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Really helpful. There's a lot of words in verse 6. So what we'll do is we'll look for the subject, and we'll look for the verb and the direct object. The subject is God. And the verb is, has shown in our hearts. And the reason why he has shown in our hearts is to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So the one doing the action here is God. The action is shown, shown in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. God shines into our hearts to give spiritual enlightenment. That means the heart was in darkness before that. If the only thing that brings light is God's enlightenment, that heart was in darkness before. You think about what kind of power it takes to bring light and knowledge and understanding to a darkened, dead heart. It's the power that the Creator has. It's nothing less than the power that the Creator has. You think about how bad and how devastating and how formidable is spiritual darkness. It's so bad that the only thing that can overcome it is the power of the Creator God. And notice that God doesn't wait for the one who's in darkness to try to shine light in his own life and to shine light into his own life. God is the one who takes the initiative. God is the one who shines the light. He brings light into the darkness. So if you're a believer and you look back at your life prior to Christ, you can see darkness and you can see 
poor understanding of yourself, poor understanding of Christ, poor understanding of God, poor understanding of the world. You look at yourself today and you have a much clearer understanding of all of those things. <clears throat> the reason why you have those is because God has done that work. If you've experienced that, that should be very, very, very encouraging. I think back to my life in the 80s before I knew Christ, and I was confused, I was aimless, and I was heading straight to destruction, and God brought me light of the gospel, the right knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that is encouraging, and God did that. So that is the first and comforting truth. The second comforting truth is that God cleanses hearts through faith. He actually cleanses hearts through faith. So we're going to look at a passage in Acts chapter 15 to see this. And the setting here is, is really important to get. This is in the early months of the church, the early years of the church. And there has been a debate within the church about Gentile converts. Gentiles are coming to Christ. And the Jew, who's been a good Jew, has only known circumcision. And so the debate was over whether these Gentiles need to be circumcised just like us Jews. And this is actually one of Peter's better moments in the New Testament. You read Acts 15 and you see Peter asserting himself in a position of leadership with biblical truth. And so I'm going to read verses 6 through 11 here. And notice when I'm reading what Peter says that God does in verse 9. The apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter. That's the matter of circumcision for the Gentile. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, this is the key point here. Cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also were. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. If you don't know Christ, your heart is dirty and it needs to be cleaned. And God will be the one who does it. And this is how he does it here. We look very carefully. We can see in verse 9 how he does it. He cleanses their hearts by faith. Remember from our passage in Matthew 15 that a person doesn't clean themselves up by observing their own man-made laws. They don't clean themselves up even by observing God's laws. This is how a person gets cleansed. Their heart gets cleansed by faith. Faith is the act of looking away from yourself in order to entirely entrust your soul to God. That's what makes a man clean, is when he looks away from himself and says, I can never be right before God in my condition, and I can never correct myself. This is what God does. He gives faith that makes the person understand that they can't cleanse themselves, they can't correct their sin problem. What is most offensive to God, what is most dirty and repulsive to God, is a person who believes that they can make themselves right before God. And the faith that helps them understand that they can't make themselves right before God is what actually cleanses their heart. So their heart is cleansed through faith. But verse 11 is a sweet verse as well. Notice what it says that saves a person. We are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I hope that everybody understands what grace is and comes to understand what grace is. You see it on the, the front door of the church as we walk in, Grace Bible Church. Grace is God freely extended, extending unmerited favor to the sinner. Favor that he doesn't deserve toward the guilty sinner. This is what God does to save a sinner. On one hand, the only thing that a sinner can do is to point to his own broken, empty righteousness and say, God, I think I'm good enough and I think you should save me because of this. But what grace does, grace gives a person faith to believe in Jesus Christ. Grace is... God's unmerited favor is what gives a person the ability to believe that they need something other than themselves. And that is what cleanses a person before God. So if you look at yourself before you were a believer and you looked at the way that you used to think about becoming right before God, and the way that I used to think that I became right before God, it was doing all of these things. It was somehow me presenting myself to God. And that is the most offensive thing to God that there is, is a person thinking that they can justify themselves before him. But after conversion, a believer understands that there's nothing that they could do that God saves on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ and the work he performed on the cross. And that is what cleanses the heart. 
as a right understanding of how a person comes before God. So that's a comforting truth to anybody who believes in Christ. That should be really, really encouraging. Third thing that should be encouraging to any believer is that God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. Now we're going to go to Romans chapter 6. We're going to take a quick look at Romans 6, and Paul is explaining the grace realities or the grace benefits. Smed calls them the grace propositions or the grace truths that are part of a believer in their new condition. What we're going to do here is we're going to be reading about what the believer and how the believer is obedient. So again, God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When God saves the sinner, the first place he goes to work is the heart. It's the inner man. Okay, that's the first place he goes to work. And that's where the bondage to sin exists. That hardness and slowness to believe in the believer, that's where God starts working. By the grace of God, your heart was able to hear another voice over the voice of the old man saying, believe yourself, be your own master. We used to be only able to hear that voice. That was the only voice that we could listen to. But by God's grace, he switched our heart's allegiance and enlightened them, cleansing them by faith, and we found obedience from the heart to God to be possible. The reason why a believer can be obedient to God is because God has dethroned sin as ruler and master of the believer's life. So when God saves a sinner, he makes them no longer a slave to sin, and he frees them to obedience to him. So when you look at your life as an unbeliever, and you see who you were obedient to, you see you're obedient to yourself and your own self-rule, if you look at your life now and see obedience to the Lord, because sin is no longer your master, that should be really, really encouraging. That is evidence to you that God has saved you. Notice the wording in verse 17. You see the past tense there. You were slaves of sin. That's because sin was your master. And this is what God does when he he frees you from sin's slavery. You became obedient, and you now are obedient in the heart. There's a present tense obedience and an ongoing into the future obedience. So that's a comforting truth as well, that God frees the heart from sin to obedience. So again, if you want to be encouraged in your walk with the Lord, look at your life before Christ. And notice the the disobedience to God, the obedience to yourself in your unbelief. And then notice and contrast that with your life today and how there is obedience. It's not perfect obedience, but it's growing obedience. That should be really encouraging. The fourth truth is that Christ makes himself at home in the hearts by faith. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3 for this. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, God lays out how he saves sinners. This is how I save the sinner. And notice what he says about Christ in the life of believer. We're going to look at verses 14 to 19. And we want to take our focus of attention and put it on verse 17 and see where Christ is actually dwelling. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Again, Paul is writing to believers here. He's writing to them when he says, um, you, in this passage. When when he writes about you here, he's writing about believers. In particular, in verse 17, we see that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That kind of dwelling described in verse 17 is not the original dwelling of Christ. It's not the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at conversion. Instead, it's a deeper more rich, more practical indwelling that comes about through ongoing close fellowship with Christ. There's more of the abiding with Christ in mind here. So the believer is to pray for a richer, deeper, practical indwelling of Christ. Jeff, is that like if I say I hold to somebody, I'm holding you in my heart kind of dwell in my heart, or is that something else? It has to do with um, 
the nearness that a person has to Christ because they're consistent because of what God has done to them. It's Christ who fellowships with them, is near them, is with them. Um, it's a nearness to the Lord that grows and grows and grows in the believer. Um, Christ actually takes up residence in their heart as their master and their Lord in the same way that, that any master is near to his servants in a household in a biblical setting. It's just near to them. Would that be kind of what Jesus was saying to the church of Laodicea when he said, Let's behold, I'm coming soon, not to hear my voice and open the door? No, probably not. No, probably not there. And I think what it has to do with here is the the closeness that Jesus as Master and Lord has to do, has with his servants and his own children. That he's near them because he has saved them and he's taken up residence in their heart as their Savior and their Lord. And they, they are in Christ. It's the believer is in Christ and they are near to Christ. Um, it's not really the, the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's Christ himself as Master and Lord of their life, being near him. And so... If you have an allegiance to Christ today, if you have an obedience to Christ as your master and Lord, um, he is resident in your heart that produces that obedience. That should be encouraging to the believer. It should be really encouraging to the believer um, in contrast to the kind of, of relationship they had with Christ before salvation, which was none, which was non-existent. So that's the fourth encouraging truth. Very sobering, very encouraging truth. And the last one that should be encouraging to the believer is this is one that we have very forward-thinking thoughts about. Christ establishes hearts without blame in holiness. We're going to look at a passage in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. And this was a unique church. This was a church that mentioned it a couple of times before. Paul is writing to this church. And this is a church that sprang up without very much training at all. Paul only stayed with them for three Sabbaths, probably less than a month total time he spent with them. And when he was there, witnessing and proclaiming Christ in the synagogue, a church grew up. But Paul had to leave the church within a month of being of that church being formed um, because of persecution. So this is a church that didn't have a lot of opportunity to spend time with Paul. And they had a lot of questions about things. And so when Paul writes to them here about being established in Christ, this is because he wants to help them understand um, about their life here presently and about their life going forward. So let's read the passage. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Paul wants to come back to the church. And Paul says in verse 12, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. Paul had a strong affection for them. And in verse 13, he says, Why? Abound in love for one another, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. So the establish your hearts phrase there means to make the heart strong. Jesus establishes the heart, and he makes the heart strong in two ways. Uh, the first way is in the very positive sense, or sorry, in the negative sense, Jesus makes the Christian to be without blame. He actually establishes them, as we look in verse 13, to be without blame. And the second way he does establish them is in a very positive sense. He establishes the heart in holiness. So Jesus establishes them on one hand to be without blame. Something that's taken away from them, the blame they deserve is gone. And he establishes them with something that they didn't have in the first place, as unbelievers, and that's with holiness. And notice where Jesus does this. He does this right before God. This is, where a man, this is what a man has in his standing before God. He has no blame, and he has holiness before God. And notice when Jesus does this. This is really good. Jesus does this at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is Jesus returning to the earth to establish his 1,000-year reign on the earth. And this is where believers are going to be um, without blame and they're going to be holy. So this looks forward to the day when the Christian receives his glorified body. Um, so when you think about conversion all the way to glorification, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are at work. Um, so this should be very, very encouraging. It's a future promise for the believer that one day the believer, even though he's been justified and he's right before God and he's standing before God today, that there is going to be an establishing 
in holiness without blame before him to set up his rule and reign on this earth. So that's really, really encouraging for the believer. That is a future promise that every believer can bank on. So we have five comforting truths of what God does. Notice that in every one of these truths, it's what God does. It's not what we do. We're the recipients here and God's the actor. And so in all these truths, they're what God does. They're things that we cannot do for ourselves. So just to review, God enlightens the heart. He enlightens our hearts so we can actually see the gospel. He cleanses the heart with faith that looks away from ourselves and looks for a savior. God frees the heart to obedience in a way that it never could be before. Christ makes himself at home. He actually takes up residence in the heart of the believer in a way that he never did before. And Christ establishes the heart for a future glorification. All of those things are things that should encourage and comfort the believer. This is what God had to do to change our hearts because um, that's the condition we were in. Those troubling truths that we looked at at the beginning were the, the condition that we were in. So what's the response for the believer in all of this? The Christian's response to God's powerful work in our life should be that we should never neglect what God is so focused on from conversion until glorification. God is focusing on doing a work in us, and we should be mindful of that, be very, very mindful. And the way we're most mindful of that is by shepherding our heart with the word of God in order to worship him, in order to love him, in order to fear him and know him and obey him every day. So I hope you guys do that on a regular, ongoing basis. If you have your reading plan, keep reading your Bible because it's in those things that you'll see what God has done for you and to be encouraged in those things. So let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the fact that you are a God who encourages. You are a God who comforts. You're a God who encourages and comforts, not because of who we are and what we do, but because of what you do. Lord, I pray for the men here today. I pray that, Lord God, you would reinforce in their minds that you are that God. You are the God who does these things. And I pray that all of this would be to encourage the men to love you and know you, to walk with encouragement and confidence not only in this day, for in the day to come as well. I pray for these men this weekend. I pray for myself that you would grant us the abilities to enter back into our homes and to function well as men in our homes, that we would lead our homes, we would fill our role rightly as men who know you and love you. And Lord God, that you would grant us your grace to do that. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen.